welcome back to the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and tonight we are going to be talking to an old friend of mine, Moroni Jessup. You might remember Moroni Jessup. He's been on the podcast before. He's a Mormon fundamentalist man who used to be a Mormon polygamist. He's currently not in a plural situation, but he is still a Mormon fundamentalist. He comes from the famed line of Mormon fundamentalists with the surname Jessup. And he also uh, is biracial. So because of his unique upbringing and his connections to Mormon fundamentalism, I think Moroni is a really important voice in the Mormon fundamentalist community. He is one of the folks who advocates for social justice issues amongst the people that he works around. And Moroni has become a good friend of mine. He's always a helpful ally. I mentioned earlier that I am working for the Under the Banner of Heaven television series coming out in April, on April 28th. And we had to do a lot of work around Mormon fundamentalism for the show, and Moroni was very helpful in that regard. So thank you, Moroni, for all your help and backup work working on the television series with me on that. And today I brought Moroni on because I really want to discuss this new emerging phenomenon that is happening in the Mormon community. And when I say Mormon, I'm using that as the umbrella term, the larger Mormon diaspora. Remember, when we're talking about Mormonism, we're talking about what historian Steve Shields calls over 487 extant expressions, groups, and sects of Mormonism. There are a lot of breakoff groups from the original church that Joseph Smith had restored, including the LDS, the LDS mainstream church, which I grew up in. That's my tradition is just one of the breakoff groups of Joseph Smith's church now. Of course, as the mainstream Mormon, we don't think that we're a breakoff group, but we are just like every group that descended from the church after Joseph Smith died. Moroni tracks a lot of these groups and interacts with a lot of them, including modern day polygamous groups. And one of the things that is happening is a lot of the, these Mormon groups, including mainstream Mormons, are packing up their things, selling their homes, and moving to Missouri. As you know, I follow these movements, and even when I'm busy doing other projects, I hear the gossip. I hear the tips and the details and the secrets people pass along to me. And thank you for all the people that reach out and share these little interesting tidbits of information. One of the things I've been hearing over and over and over again are people moving to Missouri. Recently, I heard of a mainstream Mormon woman who she's a typical Draper mom with a lot of kids and a very traditional mainstream upbringing. And she recently had a vision that told her to leave her family and kids and move to Missouri. So she did. She left her family and her children, which is pretty unique. And she moved to Missouri. And that really got me thinking, what would compel someone to leave their children and move to Missouri? So I started asking around. I started putting together all the tips that I'd heard over the years. I've heard about different movements, what we call Hebrew roots, Mormons, uh, Mormons or Mormon breakoff sects that really study and try to incorporate Jewish tr traditions into their practice. They're moving to Missouri. A lot of folks that I've heard from the remnant groups are moving or buying land in Missouri. A lot of polygamous Mormons are moving to Missouri. And there, of course, are a lot of groups that already live in Missouri, a lot of restoration groups that come out of Joseph Smith's tradition. Missouri is a really interesting place because as Mormons, we have a very complicated history with the state and Moroni and I are going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the groups there and why Missouri? Why, why is everybody moving to Missouri? What's going on? For so long in, in the majority of Mormon groups, 
Utah was the gathering place. I grew up being taught it was Zion, even though we weren't really supposed to say that out loud. But we were gathering with the saints. And over the years and throughout Mormon history, there have been several efforts to gather the saints. It's a it's a scriptural dictate that a lot of Mormons uphold. The idea that all the saints of God should gather in one place. But of course, as mainstream Mormonism has branched out to a global church, it's less focused on gathering in a physical location and more gathering in our hearts. And yet, some people are moving to Missouri. Back to Missouri. Missouri, the land that kicked out the Mormons. Missouri, the land that had the extermination order against the Mormons. Missouri, who we have cursed on our lips as Mormons since we were little children. Some groups are doing it unofficially, and some groups are doing it officially. There are official groups that believe that they need to move to Missouri. Part of it might have to do with pandemic uh, times. Uh, whenever there's a Democrat in office, there's often sort of a retrenchment in a lot of right-wing fundamentalist groups to pack their food storage and pack up their weapons and, and get ready for the end times. We saw that with Obama's presidency, with a lot of fundamentalist movements and some, you know, right-wing Mormon militia groups were really worried that the end was near. So is that it? What's going on? So I thought I would ask Moroni, since he's in the know, he goes to Missouri a lot. He interacts with a lot of folks in Missouri. And because he's so well connected to so many different Mormon fundamentalists and to he's so very knowledgeable in Mormon history, I thought we would sit down and have a discussion today about why Missouri. So I'm going to bring Moroni on. Now, as you know, maybe if you listened to our last interview with Moroni, he lives off the grid at, in a community in Arizona, in Concho, Arizona, makes internet very hard. He was able to get some internet service for this, but our connection is a little spotty at some time, so hopefully you'll be patient with that. But it was a great conversation, and I really appreciate Moroni for coming on, and hopefully you enjoy, and I'm glad that you're enjoying still listening to your polygamy. I'm amazed that people are still steadily listening to the podcast. So if this podcast means anything to you, throw a few dollars over at yearpolygamy.com, and let's get into the discussion. So happy to have an old friend and pal, Moroni Jessup, back on the podcast. Moroni, hello. Hi. Hi, Lindsay. How are you doing? I'm so good. It's so good to talk to you. And the last time I think we talked, you were, you're still living off the grid, but we had a generator in the background. So I don't know what magic you found to get better internet, but it sounds great. Oh, my magic is going to somebody else's house and using their internet. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, for those who don't remember... We've had you on at least once. Have you been on more than once on your program? I've been on a couple of times. So, yeah. So, give everyone a refresher, a brief uh, bio of who you are. Well, my name is uh, Moroni Jessup. I am a former polygamist, uh, still in the religion, but not currently practicing polygamy. I was raised in the LDS church. I joined the AUB for a while. Left there, got kicked out of there, one of the two. I still don't know which, but uh, I'm currently an independent, meaning that I don't belong to any organized group or church. And uh, what else do you want to know? Well, I think that's good because one of the episodes we did was punk rock polygamy. Uh, you're into music. You have a music blog. Yes. You're, you run, you moderate a Sister Wives, the TLC show, Sister Wives Discussion Board. 
Yes, we moderate uh, one of the largest Facebook discussion groups on the TV show, Sister Wives. You're just connected to everybody, which is why I brought you on today, because I want to talk about Missouri. Now, Missouri Missouri. has such an interesting relationship with the LDS church, uh, with Mormonism in general, and with fundamentalism. And as I talked about in the intro, Missouri is becoming, it seems to me, at least anecdotally, we don't have any data on this, a place where more and more people are moving. And so I don't know if this is just like a cultural shift right now because it's pandemic and, you know, everybody is worried about the end times and there's a Democrat in office, which always seems to move the conservative right and Mormonism even further right. I don't know what anything is about, but it seems like there's a movement to head back to Missouri, which is in line with Mormon canon and theological scripture. So brought Moroni on because Moroni knows everybody. He's been to Missouri plenty. He knows about a bunch of the groups there. And so I was hoping you could help our listeners understand why Missouri. First of all, I think you should know that the official term for anybody of the Mormon persuasion going back to Missouri among the locals are gatherers. That's what they call them, gatherers. And, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. There's been an influx of people, despite even discouragement from the church, of people who are who have been heading back to Missouri for quite some time now. So the gathering is a huge part of Mormonism. It's part of, uh, like I said, Mormon canon, especially with, with Brighamites who you know, in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith was always, well, not just Nauvoo, Kirtland, Nauvoo, all of it. Joseph was trying to gather the saints It's in Mormon scripture, gather the saints together. Brigham Young formalized it, set the immigration program where they're trying to gather converts from all over the world. And eventually the gathering sort of stopped. Uh, but for a time, they were all gathering in Salt Lake. And even, you know, before Salt Lake, they were gathering in Missouri. So why don't we talk about this idea of gathering first, and then let's talk about why why Missouri is important, what the geography has to do with Mormonism, what it has to do with our theology. Where do you want to start? First of all, the reason that Missouri is so important is that uh, it's canonized in our scriptures. I think the thing that a lot of us, a lot of us will read the Doctrine and Covenants and sometimes forget the historical context. Joseph Smith was issuing revelations as events were unfolding for the saints at that time, and it's still in LDS uh, canonical scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that Missouri is the land appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. The scriptures call it the land of promise and the city of Zion and the center place and the temple lot for the temple that is to be built in New Jerusalem is established in Doctrine and Covenants 57 and Doctrine and Covenants 58. They were using money that uh, they were acquiring in Kirtland to buy up land in Missouri. And the LDS Church is still one of the largest private landowners in Missouri. Even though they don't encourage saints to move there, they still own a lot of land over there. They do. And and it's interesting. And I want to hear what you grew up. Again, we have similar backgrounds in that we both started in the mainstream. But your family, as, as a Jessup, for those who don't know the Jessup surname, 
is a huge fundamentalist name. Your dad was a prominent fun- fundamentalist man. You've you've been connected with all these groups. So I want to hear how fundamentalists talk about Missouri. But in my experience growing up mainstream LDS, Missouri was like the bad guy. They were the people that persecuted the saints. I mean, when we say Missouri, we're not talking about the land. We're talking about the people in, in our culture, like the things that Missouri did to us. Missouri drove us out. Missouri had an extermination order. To us, that's like a huge trauma point. And so, of course, we knew that the Garden of Eden happened to be in Jackson County, Missouri, and that there was some significance. But just on a base surface level, as a chapel Mormon, Missouri was a bad thing, you know, not a good thing, even though, of course, that's a very simplistic narrative in Mormonism. What were you taught about Missouri growing up? Well, when I was uh, growing up, exactly exactly what you were saying, that uh, Missourians were bad and that there was a lot of bad things that happened to the, the Latter-day Saints and that they were driven from their homes, driven from their lands and uh, forced to relocate to Nauvoo. And then from there, they were forced to relocate to Utah. But there's always a promise of returning. There's always mention that we'll go back someday. We were always taught that during, you know, before the second coming, we would get our hand carts and go back to Missouri. And, I, you know, I always wondered, why would we have to have hand carts? But when, you know, the, prep, the Mormon prepper movement, people preparing for end of days, food storage, weapons, all of that kind of stuff really took shape. I remember there was a uh, Mormon prepper store that opened in a strip mall out here. And in the window, they had an aluminum hand cart so you could take it back to Missouri. <laughs> I was just thinking well, like, maybe we've advanced a little bit that we can, you know, I've seen Walking Dead. I've seen some post-apocalyptic stuff. We can still siphon off the gas. Maybe the roads will be blocked, but I just don't get why we still need to do the hand cart thing, but maybe we do. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you heard the story about, you know, pray that the saints don't go back to Missouri in the winter time. Did you ever hear that one? No, I want to hear it. What is it? Well, I don't know that, uh, you know, I, I, I was trying to find that reference and couldn't find it, but they used to say the pray that the saints won't go back to Missouri during the winter. Cause we don't uh, want to bury our babies along the plains in reverse. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when winter would come as a kid, I would think, Oh gosh, I hope this isn't the winter that we're going to go back to Missouri. <laughs> but you know, the thing uh, that Mormon kids dream about. I, I remember my my apocryphal second coming story is we we were told that you might have to go to war with your neighbors, you know. And I remember we had a non-Mormon neighbor who was so sweet, like the sweetest lady. She would like show me the flowers in her garden. But I my bedroom was right next to our food storage room. And so I was always worried that, you know, I would have to fight my poor neighbor this sweet lady would come at gunpoint and like next to my bedroom and steal the food storage. That's what kept me up at night as a kid. <laughs> you know, I've, I've talked to some of my friends that live in Missouri, some of them who've lived in Missouri all their lives and been associated with Latter-day Saints. And they say that that's usually the kind of uh, gatherer that comes from Utah to Missouri. They're the prepper types, the ones who are, anticipating the end of days. And then there's a high turnover rate because they get to Missouri and find out that it's an economically depressed area and that there aren't a lot of jobs. You don't need jobs when the Lord's coming. Yeah. It was in the 1970s that the church actually started discouraging saints from going to Missouri because there were so many that were going. And they had uh, they had one of their apostles. I think his name was uh, Elder Graham Doxey. He was the, he was the, uh, 
70, Area 70 for Missouri. And uh, he started implementing, when people would move from Utah to Missouri, he would implement questions in like an interview session with the local leadership. They would, he would ask if they have jobs. And he was kind of able to weed out those who had felt called, so to speak, to move to Missouri. One of the determining factors is, do you have a job? You know, did you move here just because God told you? And uh, I remember there was an incident when I was in Missouri just a couple of years ago. I went to one of the church visitor centers. The lady who was doing, you know, greeting visitors at the visitor center didn't know I was a fundamentalist, but she knew that I was a Mormon. And she leaned in and whispered to me that, that the spirit had told her to move to Missouri. And she whispered it because she didn't want other people in the visitor center to hear it because the church highly dis- discourages people from moving to Missouri right now. Well, that's really helpful. And I know you've done a lot of research for us, so I want to get into it. But really, sure. the, the reason why this podcast came up for me is I've been hearing, you know, I follow fundamentalist movements, especially in the, in the mainstream movement or the mainstream church right now, there's a large movement for, I don't, I don't know what we'd call new restorationists. We, we need to come up with a, a term for them because fundamentalists don't like me calling this new movement fundamentalists because they don't practice polygamy. It's more folks that follow Denver Snuffer and Rock Waterman. And right. there's a huge Joseph fought polygamy crowd, which we've talked about, but this sort of like new age, uh, energy work. I don't, I don't even know what you'd call it. They, there's yeah. crossover with Chad Daybell, that kind of stuff, but like all Hebrew roots, Mormons, you know, Hebrew, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And a, I'm hearing stories like, and not just one or two, but a lot of stories of folks moving to Missouri right now. In fact, the latest one was crazy to me. It was a woman who, she felt called Mormon woman from Draper, Utah felt called and just abandoned her family and her kids to move out there. And this just seems kind of extreme for me. So I reached out to you and I'm like, Marona, you got to tell us what's going on in Missouri right now. So why don't you get into it and I'll just pop in and ask questions along the way. Does that work? Sure. Do, should we start with the history? Yeah, let's let's start with the history. Let's uh, give give people a background and assume that, you know, people have never heard of, about Mormons in Missouri before. Yeah. OK, so we know that the church was formed in 1830. Well, um, one of the first revelations received was that they needed to start preaching to the Indian tribes, to the Native American tribes. As early as 1831, just one year after the church was formed, the missionaries started to go to Missouri to preach to the native tribes over there, specifically the Delaware and the Shawnee uh, in Jackson County. And the reason that those tribes who were traditionally Eastern tribes were over there because they wanted to get away from uh, harassment from uh, Christian missionaries. So I think it's kind of funny that the, the tribes went over there to get away from missionaries and then the church sends missionaries over to them. So, um, but so basically they purchased like in 1832, they purchased like about 1200 acres and then Missouri and then Missourians started observing that Mormons were moving into the area. And uh, immediately there was uh, a little bit of conflict. And uh, I think like within, within by 1833, there was like 1200, 1200 saints living in Jackson County. 
And of course, by then, Joseph Smith had issued uh, a revelation establishing independence as the center stake, uh, Jackson County as as uh, promised land, so to speak. By 1833, they were having some pretty bad conflicts with the locals. And I have to I have to point out, you know, I think that it's interesting to note that Mormons, when they talk about the history of some of these events, we have kind of like a victim mentality. But in truth, Latter-day Saints kind of did a lot of things that kind of earned that. They, they were not only self-righteous, but they would go into an area and they would vote in block. There's a story here locally. I live close to the town of St. John's, Arizona. And there's a story here about there was a conflict between the Mexican residents and the Latter-day Saints. The reason being is that any time that there was an election, Saints would travel down from Utah and vote as if they lived in the area. And I think that we need to understand that, that these weren't unprovoked attacks, even though the, the, the attacks were heinous and vicious and disturbing. At the same time, they weren't completely 100% unprovoked. The Saints kind of did some, but they did they, they weren't innocent for sure. Like that, that's the part that's been hard for me to contend with because again, the way that we grew up, it's a complete persecution narrative. We never hear what, what we did, what our ancestors did to, like you said, provoke the conflict. And even if we didn't provoke it, we certainly uh, didn't back down, you know, getting into the history of, of all of it. Mormons, it was a very complicated thing. And like you said, it doesn't justify any violence that was perpetrated against the Mormons, but we should be a little bit more balanced in understanding that Mormons sometimes gave as good as they got. Yeah. So by like 1833, 1834, they were driven out of Jackson County. There was a man named a non-Mormon named Alexander Donovan, Donovan, I think it's pronounced. He was a friend of the Mormons, and he created a legislature in Missouri to basically create a county out of no man's land in the middle of nowhere, specifically for the Mormons. And that, that was Clay County. And that's where Far West was uh, located. And, uh, you know, of course, we've all heard of Far West. Uh, nor it's a, quite a ways north of Independence, north of Jackson County. But that was... That was the agreed upon location where the saints would would move to. Okay. But once they got to far west, they started moving out into other counties as well. They started moving up into Davies County and other counties. And, you know, I mean, whereas it's kind of unfair to say you're restricted to this county, they didn't listen to it either and started moving into other areas where allegedly they weren't supposed to. And at the same time, they were there was uh they were having issues within the church that didn't help them. When Joseph Smith arrived at Far West, he had disagreements with Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery had been, you know, involved with the translation of the Book of Mormon with Joseph Smith and David Whitmer, and they wound up leaving the church and they started spreading bad things about the Mormons to the non-Mormon neighbors. And this kind of fanned the flames and everything, you know. So, you know, we've heard rumors about the Danites, and the Danites were a secret organization with the Mormons that basically swore oaths to protect the church and to protect the leaders of the church, and uh, they were somewhat controversial. And they started, they started uh, making threats to 
what they called the dissenters, you know, people like Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and John Whitmer saying that they had to leave their lands, uh, quote, lest uh, a more fam- fatal calamity shall befall you. Cowdery and Whitmer took these rumors to the outsiders that there was a secret organization called the Danites. Also, I, I need to point out that as far as elections go, the uh, Mormons in that particular area outnumbered everyone else by sometimes five to one. So they had a way of swaying the votes in their their benefit. So 1838 was the big year when the Mormon War started. And basically, it started with Sidney Rigdon making a speech on July 4th at Far West, where he spoke out against their neighbors who with whom they were having conflict, basically telling them that they would exterminate the Mormon, or excuse me, exterminate the non-Mormons and drive them out of their lands if needs be. And of course that didn't go over well for, for the locals. About a month later, they had uh, the first election in Gallatin, Missouri, which is in Davies County, just north of far west. Some of the candidates started accusing the Mormons of voting in block. And so when the Mormons were going towards the polls, there was a fist fight that broke out between the non-Mormons and the Mormons. One of the uh, Mormons, a guy by the name of John Butler, who was a Danite, called out for other Danites to assist him. And so this huge brawl just broke out, huge fight right there at the at the polls where they were voting. In nearby Carroll County, they were having uh, an election day also. And what they voted was that Mormons were not allowed to live in Carroll County and that they would be forced out by force. And there in Carroll County, they had a, they had a town called DeWitt. And DeWitt had quite a few Mormons there. And so they actually got together armed mobs and started harassing and uh, burning homes, driving out people. They uh, captured a couple of prominent Mormons. One was a mass alignment. They uh, forced them to ride up on top of a cannon and uh, paraded them around on top of a cannon, which was humiliating. David W. Patton, that was called, uh, they called him Captain Fear Not because of his fearlessness in facing the anti-Mormons, led uh, a raiding party because they heard rumors that there was a group coming in from Livingston County that had a cannon and that they were marching on to Adam on Diamond and they were going to have this uh, battle. And so uh, the Mormons outnumbered the non-Mormons. And when the non-Mormons realized that they were outnumbered, they abandoned the cannon, they dug a hole and kind of put it in there kind of haphazardly. And the Mormons captured this cannon and, uh, and this, this will kind of be important a little bit later. But uh, they also captured uh, nine non-Mormon prisoners, including a guy by the name of Ira Glaze. And by all accounts, Ira Glaze was not kind of all there mentally. And, uh, but they stripped him naked, tied him to the cannon, and paraded him on the cannon all the way to Adam on Diana. So Wow. So they they have this cannon that they call the old sow. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the reason they called it the old sow, there's, you know, 
there's some mythical history on that. You know, they say that the reason that they found the cannon is because of some pigs were grazing where the cannon was kind of partially exposed out of the ground. But, you know, it's not really known for sure if this is what happened. But uh, so they, they tie this kid, you know, and he was just a kid naked to the cannon, parade him all the way over to Adam on Diamond. And when they get the cannon to Adam on Diamond, Joseph Smith sets off the cannon three times. And uh, all the men that are gathered there wave their hats in the air and they do the Hosanna shout. You know, the Hosanna shout, if you don't know, is, you know, uh, done at temple dedications and, you know, very Mormon, Mormon thing to do. Uh, one of the few times that Nor- Mormons are allowed to get noisy. We do love our cannons. Yeah, that's, that's true. So uh, at this point, I kind of want to talk about John Taylor for a minute. Okay, so John Taylor, he was the third president of the United, or excuse me, the third president of the church. At this time, he was a young man. He had converted to the church in Toronto, Canada. And when he was there in the eastern portion of uh, Canada and the United States, he knew Joseph Smith. He knew Parley P. Pratt. He knew Brigham Young and others. You know, he, he had been a Methodist preacher before he um, joined the LDS church. And so he had worked in the capacity as a preacher before being Mormon. And then he worked with these men as a preacher. He arrived in Missouri at Far West around the time that this was happening. His grandson, uh, Samuel Taylor. So in the book, The Kingdom or Nothing, it's documented that he saw a marked difference between the saints when they were back east in Kirtland as opposed to the way they were in Missouri. He said that the saints had gone from preaching the gospel to being almost militant. And he said, even Joseph Smith, there was a change in him that uh, Brigham Young, Parley P. Pratt, Joseph Smith, all of them were carrying weapons with them wherever they walked. And that he realized then that he wasn't just a preacher, but that he was a soldier in a war in a way I think all of the face of Mormonism changed during the 1830 Mormon war. You know, we went completely from being a Christian church to being a group of people that had to fight our uh, fight for our survival in, in the war. And I think that it forever changed the face of Mormonism, these events, which, you know, uh, will eventually lead to us explaining why Missouri is so important and why the loss of Missouri hurt so much. You know, John Taylor carried that attitude with him through the rest of his life. You know, he was the, the kingdom or nothing guy. You know, he's the guy that spoke out that with us, it will be the kingdom of God or nothing. So he kind of had that fierce attitude for the rest of his life anyway. And isn't that, it's like turned into an acronym, right? Like K O G Oh, and yeah, I've seen that like on some headstones and stuff, kingdom of God or nothing. Yeah, it's almost like a rallying cry now, you know. So anyway, not all not all of the um, not all of the uh, saints were pleased with what they saw happen during this time, because uh, basically what happened at this point after they captured the cannon is that the Mormons launched a campaign against the the non-Mormons. They started, they started a campaign of burning houses in Gallatin and uh, Millport and uh, surrounding areas. And they say that all of Davies County 
if you were a non-Mormon, your house went up in flames. They uh, were looting. And when the Mormons were later driven out, they knew that they were looting because they found material possessions that belonged to some of the non-Mormons in the possession of some of the Mormons. It was said that Gallatin was just shooting up flames and smoke up into the air that could be seen for miles. And if you were standing in nearby Livingston County, you could see women and children fleeing from the Mormons, actually fleeing from the Mormons as the Mormons advanced. Some of the Mormons were discouraged by this, uh, like uh, Thomas B. Marsh and Orson Hyde. Orson Hyde was in the, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and they left the church over what they saw happen in Davies County. They went to the non-Mormons and reported to them things about uh, the Danites. They told them that the Danites wanted to march to Liberty and do the same thing in, in the town of Liberty. It's interesting to note that Orson Hyde, a few years later, apologized and was brought back into the fold. At the time, he was very discouraged at the level of violence that he was uh, seeing from them. There, uh, there was a historian named John Coral who witnessed these events, and he wrote, The love of pillage grew upon them very fast, for they plundered every kind of property they could get a hold of. And he's talking about the Mormons in, in that case. So. So uh, October 25th was uh, one of the significant times during the, the Mormon War in that militia, a non-Mormon militia, was camped at the banks of Crooked Creek. And uh, during that mor uh, morning, the Mormons attacked the militia, and there was like an all-out battle that took place. The Mormons won the battle, but they lost more men. They lost three men, including Captain... Fear Not, or David W. Patton. And uh, it said that David Patton was wearing a white overcoat, as, and he charged into battle, shouting, the sword of the Lord in Gideon. The Mormons had swords and knives, and the Missouri had none of that, and so they were driven back. There's a story that goes along with the Battle Creek, a personal story. When I learned about some of the events that took place then at, at, uh, at the Battle of Crooked Creek, Parley P. Pratt is one of the beloved apostles in the Mormon faith. I don't think that anybody ever says anything bad about Parley P. Pratt, but after the battle, they had captured a man by the name of uh, Wyatt Craven. He was a non-Mormon, and uh, they were marching back to Far West when they decided to let him go. But they made him covenant with them that if they let him go, that he would never take up arms against the Mormons again. As he was walking away, Parley P. Pratt took up a rifle and shot the guy in the back and left him for dead. Now, he didn't die. He survived, and he was able to make it back to his friends. But his report of how the Mormons had broken their covenant by shooting him was one of the reasons why Hans Mill took place only five days later. Also, one of the reasons that the extermination order was issued by Governor Lilburn Boggs. Anyway, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So basically, this was uh, this battle was also, you know, and the loss of three of their men was also a wake up call for the Mormons because the Mormons kind of thought at this point that they were invincible and that nothing could happen to them because God was on their side. But they started saying, if Captain Fearnock can be killed, then are we really immune from the, the Gentiles' weapons? Can we be killed? You know, it's, they started realizing that this was dangerous. And 
Joseph Smith reiterated to him, yes, you can be killed, <laughs> which the, uh, the kind of naivety of, of that attitude is kind of mind boggling a little bit. But uh, so uh, two days after the battle, the famous extermination order was issued by Governor Lilburn Boggs, Executive Order 44. So uh, that was that all Mormons had to be driven from the state or exterminated. Two choices. I, it's interesting to note that that was not repealed by the state of Missouri until 1976. So until 1976, it was still legal to kill Mormons in the state of Missouri, which is just mind-boggling. I know, especially when you consider the 70s, a lot of Mormons went back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, October 30th is uh, when Hans Mill took place. And uh, have, you, have you ever been to Hans Mill, Lindsay? I actually haven't. I've, I know a lot about it uh, just because of the work that we did for Banner and other things, but I've never been myself with well, you. You know, the church just uh, obtained that property um, about 10 years ago. Prior to that, it had belonged to the community of Christ. And I was surprised, you know, because I'm sure like you that I I've been to like all these church history sites all over the place. You know, they usually have a visitor center, a parking lot, and they have, you know, people assigned to answer questions. The road to Hans Mill is just, a, you know, at least when I went, it's been about five years since I went. But it was just a dirt road through the middle of uh, the fields, you know, tire tracks through, through grass. And then when you get there, there's just like a, it's just a patch of grass and trees. And it's, there's just a heavy feeling, just a very heavy feeling. And I think it's because the, what happened at that place carries a lot of weight in the memory of Mormons. That a mob of Missourians was led by Sheriff Jennings it was the sheriff of Livingston County, into the settlement, and 17 people were killed, including a lot of, including a lot of uh, women and children. One of the children shot was Sardius Smith. He was only 10 years old. And here's the, here's the thing that gets me, that the person who shot Sardius Smith and killed him was Ira Glaze, the guy that they had strapped naked to the cannon and marched and paraded him around. It makes you wonder, if they hadn't mistreated that, that boy and tied him to the cannon that way, would he have been participated in such a heinous act where he shot a little boy himself, you know, so... I, I think about that a lot of how violence begets violence and Mormonism. And when we talk about current approaches to sort of de-escalating violent strains of Mormonism, this is what I think a lot about, just how persecution narrative is used always to justify more bad behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, this was a severe blow for the Mormons to have so many of their numbers killed. So basically at that point, the Mormons were given, uh, given an ultimatum that they were either going to be marched upon by the Missouri militia, that they had to leave their properties and the leadership had to surrender. So this is where Joseph and several of the leaders surrendered and were taken to Liberty Jail. You know, of course, a lot of us know the story of Liberty Jail, that he was there for months and months. But the story of how 
Joseph escaped is kind of interesting that they were held at Liberty Jail, but then they were transferred to Gallatin to await trial in front of a grand jury. But Joseph requested a change of venue. So they were transferring them to Boone County. When something happened, the, the guards got drunk, they escaped the guards or the guards helped them escape. Nobody really knows exactly what happened. The stories are different. Some say that uh, Joseph bought them alcohol. Some say that he bribed them, but whatever the case, he escaped. But Joseph said tongue in cheek that was changing his venue to Illinois, which is where the saints were going to later what uh, became Nauvoo. The sheriff, Jennings, who had led the attack on Hans Mill, was upset with the sheriff of Davies County for letting Joseph Smith go. The sheriff from Davies County actually wasn't the one who let Joseph go, but he got blamed for it. So Sheriff Jennings assembled a a posse and went and executed that sheriff from Davies County, along with one of his deputies, in reprisal for what they did. Sheriff Jennings, about, you know, roughly a little over 20 years later, during the Civil War, was out on his porch. And I actually went to the house where this took place. He was standing out on his porch, was shot in the back and killed one evening. And it was blamed on Union supporters. Porter Rockwell was doing a mail run through the area at the time. So, you know, there's been an assumption, you know, did Porter Rockwell shoot Sheriff Jennings, who's responsible for Hans Mill? Nobody knows for sure, but it is interesting to think about. Yeah, this is really great history, and I think it's going to help people because I'm I'm learning sort of the ins and outs. It really was Missouri is fraught with blood and tension for so long. Yeah. So Lilburn Boggs, the one who issued the extermination order in 1842, there was an assassination attempt on his life. He was standing by a window and somebody shot him through the window with a shotgun and he was hit by several pellets. He was wounded so severely that they were printing his obituary in the paper, but somehow he survived. Of course, he blamed uh, the Mormons for this. Joseph Smith and Porter Rockwell were arrested for attempted murder. Joseph Smith escaped, Porter Rockwell escaped, and then Porter Rockwell was uh, arrested a second time and acquitted. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. So, Lindsay, you know that uh, as Mormons, we talk about that. Missouri has to be punished. Missouri has to be wiped clean of its inhabitants. Have you heard any of those prophecies before? Yeah, absolutely. And I, it was part of the, you know, temple oath for a long time too, back in the day to yes. a lot of the prophets in Missouri and yada, yada. Yeah, there was, there was what was called the oath of vengeance. And that was that uh, people vowed that they would avenge the, the blood of the martyred righteous dead, including Joseph Smith to the I don't remember how many generations, to the fourth generation, I think. And this was actually part of the temple ceremony. And oddly enough, uh, a lot of fundamentalists were using that oath also. You know, even though Joseph Smith has died and gone for many, many decades, you know, (laughs) there are still fundamentalists who still take that oath. And uh, I was part of a congregation that we discussed implementing that and there were several of us who how do you say it we we protested the use of that in our endowment and so it was not included oh that's fascinating i didn't know because 
uh, again, you break the the mold of the stereotype of fundamentalists all the time. It's not it's not like you're trying to worship and return to all of the things of the old ways, all the dangerous things of the old ways. And I definitely think the South is dangerous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that particular oath illustrates the frustration and the anger that the saints had back then. You know, it, there comes a time when you need to let go. And what it brings to mind to me, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but what it brings to mind to me is that that generational trauma is a real thing. I think that a lot of times we we try to say, well, you know, I didn't do that to your ancestors, you know, but you go to Missouri, you know, especially in rural Missouri, uh, especially in places like Davies County and Carroll County, the people there remember very well the Mormon war. And they remember it from a whole different perspective. Like I told you that story about Parley P. Pratt shooting somebody in the, in the back, you know, where I got that story from a Missouri history book, from the history of those of Livingston County, you know, that those they've recorded entirely different versions of those events in comparison to what, you know, what we perceive. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting to to hear that it's taught that way it makes sense you've given us sort of a historical background now talk about how we've developed the the attitude because it's all this trauma it's all this pain so how do we get to where we are now well you know it's, it's kind of funny i i was reading in some books how men like brigham young even when they were in illinois even when they were in utah were talking assuredly that one day that they would return to Missouri. There wasn't a question in his mind about whether or not that would take place. He knew that that would take place. And he spoke often of it. When we return to, when we return to Jackson County, we will build the temple. Parley P. Pratt, around 1844, wrote a pamphlet called Angel of the Prairies. In this pamphlet, he presents as if it's a dream or a vision of the future of returning to Jackson County. And he describes the city that's built there and he describes New Jerusalem and he describes the temple and he describes Native American tribes returning to the plains to assist in the building of the temple. And I think that that particular pamphlet exemplifies the type of hope that they had of returning to Jackson County. Then there was John Taylor's vision, which uh, I think was recorded in the 1870s. I don't remember exactly what year, but it was recorded in Wilford Woodruff's journal. He records a vision of destruction taking place all over the United States. He goes to Baltimore. He go, goes to Philadelphia, to Washington, D.C., to New York. And he describes scenes of carnage and desolation. It's like it's like watching an episode of Walking Dead, basically. But in it, he describes Missouri being wiped clean of its inhabitants. And then at the end of it, he, des- he uh, describes 12 men dedicating the, de- uh, the gates of uh, New Jerusalem dressed in their temple robes. So uh, that, I think, typifies the belief that Missouri would be wiped clean of all inhabitants before the saints return that returning to Jackson County, returning to Missouri would be something in the far distant future after some sort of apocalyptic event or after destruction takes place. And I think a lot of that originates with Joseph Smith because of some of the things that he said after the saints were expelled from Jackson County. Um, 
I mentioned that Alexander Donovan, a non-Mormon who was a friend of the Mormons, he was the one that secured the uh, county for the Mormons at Far West. He was thinking of taking some, some land in Jackson County as a repayment for a debt. And Joseph Smith warned him against purchasing land, uh, land in Jackson County. He said, because, uh, he said, because God's wrath hangs over Jackson County and it will eventually be visited by sword and fire. And then he prophesied that fields and farms and houses would be burned and that only the chimneys would be remaining. It's so interesting because we talk about Missouri was fraught back then, but now our, like our generation, we have generations of not only the persecution narrative and the history and the, and the generational trauma, but like the folklore, the prophecies, the, the stories around it. And this idea of going back to sort of have this reckoning in the second coming, it's a reckoning, but it's also a refuge. It's so interesting. And really a lot of, a lot of mainstream people don't think about Missouri very much at all. And yet there's this whole group of people that really, really do. Missouri is always on their mind. Right. So when I started hearing about people going back to Missouri, I thought they were crazy. A lot of people in my circles thought they were crazy, especially we started my community here in Arizona that I used to belong to. Probably about half of them over the last 10 years have moved to Missouri. Other people here that I'm related to were saying, oh, no, don't you know about the prophecies about what's going to happen in Missouri? And they bring up things like Joseph Smith prophesying that Jackson County would would be wasted. And uh, the way they answer it, they say those prophecies have already taken place. Joseph Smith's prophecies were fulfilled, and they say that they were fulfilled during the Civil War. What year was it? It was uh, 1863 during the Civil War that a group of Missourians from Jackson County uh, massacred a bunch of people, and they called it the Lawrence Massacre. And so one of the generals ordered what they called Order Number 11, and Order Number 11 ordered the expulsion of all residents out of Jackson County. And so they burned farms, they shot livestock, they drove people out of their homes into neighboring counties. And we're talking like this is in October when it's starting to get cold, you know. But all of the residents of Jackson County were left without a home. It was said that only chimneys were available, only brick walls were, uh, were visible. There was nothing left. It basically became a no man's land. These people that are going back to Missouri say that the prophecies about Jackson County being wiped clean of its inhabitants already happened. And so this is their justification that, you know, it's safe. It's safe to go back to Jackson County. That's amazing. Can we move into like, tell us about Missouri now who let's talk about all the groups there, because another fascinating thing about Missouri is. Again, when we talk about Year of Polygamy, we talk about all of these hundreds of different Mormon sects and break-off groups. There, Missouri is kind of this melting pot for all of these groups. So lay out the landscape of what groups are there, some of the biggest ones, and what they're up to. It's funny. If you drive through Independence, you see all these little red brick churches everywhere. They all have the word like restoration or Zion in them. And I asked my friend when I first drove through there, I said, are, are these all, are these all breakoffs from, or not necessarily breakoffs because they don't perceive themselves as breakoffs, but are, are all these restoration churches, you know, descended from Joseph Smith? 
And he said, yeah, they are. And there's so many of them, you know, there's so many of them, you know, there's, of course, the one that we know the most is uh, the community of Christ, good people. There's also the Church of Christ Temple Lot, who owns the lot of land that Joseph Smith dedicated for the temple in New Jerusalem. There's the, you know, they also call themselves the Hedrickites. There's the Cutlerites. There's the Whitmerites. There's all kinds of Mormon breakoffs and sects and splinter groups. And, you know, our branch of Mormonism, you know, through Brigham Young is no different. They're starting to get presence there as well. And many groups are starting to gather over there. I wanted to talk a little bit about my friend Jeff Foley and finish up the story of the old sow cannon. If you want, it's an yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. So the cannon comes back into the interview. Yeah. So uh, when I went to Missouri, some of my friends said, you got to go meet this guy, this guy named Jeff Foley. He gives tours to selected few people of different sites, you know, of the 1838 Mormon War. So a lot of these places that I mentioned in my little narrative here, Jeff Foley drove me around personally in uh, his car and he treated me to Dairy Queen afterwards. But uh, anyway, so who is Jeff Foley? Jeff Foley, back around the year 2000, was elected mayor of Chillicothe, Missouri in um, Livingston County. The same town that the mob that, that marched on Hans, Hans Mill originated from. So here's the thing about Jeff. He's, he grew up in Chillicothe all of his life. And he grew up LDS all his life. When he got elected into office... He had access to a lot of the archive uh, documents there in the mayor's office. And so he started reading through those because he wanted to get to know his town. He uh, came across information about the old sow, that cannon that was stolen by the saints, that, uh, that it was basically, I mentioned the story where they had buried the cannon and that the, the Mormon militia found the cannon and, and claimed it and took it to, to be there. So he started trying to research what had happened to that cannon. Apparently it had been moved with them to Nauvoo. And while they were building the temple in Nauvoo, it was kept in the basement and nobody knew what happened to that until one of his friends told him that they were displaying the cannon in the LDS church history uh, museum that's right next to Temple Square. In an official capacity, as the mayor of Chillicothe, Missouri, Jeff travels to Salt Lake, sees the cannon, and then after that, goes to the church offices and decides to make uh, an appointment with the church. And so they send him to speak to one of the general authorities, a man by the name of uh, Hugh W. Pinnock. Hugh W. Pinnock subsequently was the same man who had tried to pay off Mark Kaufman. So he confronts him and he says, your church took something that belongs to my community and I would like that returned to us, please. So the, the general authority got really upset and angry, refused, of course, to return the canon. And there was a series of debates. The church enlisted historians to basically disprove that uh, the canon is indeed the canon that Jeff was requesting. At the same time, Jeff, in the capacity as mayor of one of the communities in Missouri, wrote to all 150 legislators in the state of Missouri 
and asked for reparations for the damages uh, that had been done to Mormons. Basically, uh, what happened is when the, the saints fled from Missouri to Nauvoo, they abandoned their properties and Missourians simply went in and, and took possession of those properties without any sort of payment. And so what he requested was that the Missouri, Missouri state of Missouri put through legislation, the reparation of damages to the Mormons, and then, and that Mormons in good faith should return the canon from uh, the history museum back to the town of Chillicothe, Missouri. This is some hot tea drama. <laughs> crazy, crazy story. So what happened is that he got a cease and desist letter from the LDS church, not, uh, not about the canon but about trying to get reparations. <laughs> and uh, as a result, he wound up being excommunicated from the church. And he said that later, another general authority contacted him and wanted him to return and begged him to return. But he, he basically had had enough then, you know. Just uh, a man trying to, to follow through on a temple oath and he gets yeah. excommunicated. <laughs> yeah, he said that the old sow is no longer on display it's no longer in, on display in the church history museum, but here's another funny thing that there's another friend of mine, historian, Cheryl Bruno. She's been a really good friend for a long time. So Cheryl disagrees with Jeff that uh, the canon on display is actually the old sow. And she has like all these documents that uh, show that it could have been a number of other canons obtained from, you know, from uh, the War of 1812, from uh, Louisiana, you know, the Saints purchased a bunch of cannons from uh, the state of Louisiana. So she makes all these arguments. And then Jeff claims that he has lots of documentation that it is, in fact, the old Sal, the same cannon that was captured. Me and my friends tried to orchestrate a few years ago a public debate between Jeff and between Cheryl. And I don't know what happened. I don't know why it fizzled out or that it never happened, but it didn't happen. That's amazing. Well, and you talk about Jeff. There, there are actually a bunch of prominent, I would say in the fundamental circles, prominent leaders, prominent folks that live in Missouri and have similar, I wouldn't say fights with historical relics like a canon, but other things too. Should we talk about some of them? Talk about the man who should not be named. There's a man that we're, we both, <laughs> we talked about this beforehand because uh, I haven't even podcasted about this person, but someone had left a comment on one of my episodes naming this, this man and okay so he who shall not be named <laughs> yes he and we know that whenever he gets named he sends his secretaries <laughs> hashtag probably also plural wives from what i'm hearing to try to get me to take it down from the website it's just a pain i i don't want to fight fundamentalists on the internet you know but there <laughs> let's talk about but this guy without bringing more trouble on either of our heads Okay, so there's a guy, <laughs> and this guy is a uh, BYU graduate, and he is a scientist and an inventor with several patents who has government funding to do research and to manufacture different things. He has several enterprises going on, and so what he does is he has a church, a Mormon breakoff church. If you are a member of the church, you are also an employee of one of his lucrative companies, but you also don't work for money. You work for basically room and board. 
and you're not allowed to have any possessions and it's all very cult-like. And the reason I know about this is because I've had firsthand accounts from three of my friends who were, who used to belong to this cult. And there's no other way to describe it other than cult, because what happens is when you join, they want access to your bank accounts. They separate you from your children. You live in one building, your children live in another, and you basically have to seek permission to get them to see them. One of my friends, uh, his daughter, who was a teenager, decided to go for a walk around the neighborhood where their compound is located. And when she got back, my friend got reprimanded harshly for his daughter going out for a walk. And so when they left, it was kind of like they left in the middle of the night so they wouldn't be stopped. Now, as far as polygamy goes, yes, they live polygamy or rather he lives polygamy. He's the only one allowed to. It's so funny that you say that because the secretaries, and again, I'm using air quotes because they're plural wives, swear up and down. He's not a polygamist. He doesn't want anything to do with that. And we've talked to people. We know people. You can't hide polygamy. This is what I talk about in the Sense of Mormon History podcast with Brian about Nauvoo. It's hard to deny polygamy when you have so many people involved And this guy is one of those. Like, I don't understand why he doesn't just step up and embrace it like the other fundamentalists do. It's so weird. denial. One of my friends who lived there for about four months and who still lives in the vicinity is still on good terms with this guy. And he basically says that he's a good guy and that he will occasionally call him up and, you know, have doctrinal discussions with him. And then another one of my friends who went to go pay a visit, they they have an underground facility, literally. They have like a, one of their uh, facilities is in a cave. But he said that, you know, it's not primitive. He said he walked in and he felt like he was walking onto, it was so high tech that he felt like he was walking into the bridge of the Star Trek Enterprise. So. Oh my gosh, our bunkers are getting super fancy now, Mormons. (laughs) Yeah, but they're very closed off and And I know that they have an online presence and I've heard the same thing that you've heard that they will issue cease and desist if you mention them, but we're not really mentioning them, are we? (laughs) We're not mentioning any names at all. Who else? Uh, We know, I know that there are a bunch of, like I said, this, the, what did you call them? Hebrew? Hebrew roots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like uh, my friend, Jeff, that I just mentioned, I told that story about He doesn't really have a church, but what he likes to do is, uh, and it's very interesting, he'll assemble conferences and he likes to assemble people from all walks and different, uh, from all the different restoration branches. He'll have fundamentalists there. He'll have Cutlerites there. He'll have, uh, he'll have uh, sealed portion people there. He'll have uh, Snufferites there. He likes to invite all these people to have dialogues. And since I don't live in Missouri, I've never been able to to go to one of them, but I've seen him advertise them online that he he has a very large sense of Mormonism and tries to embrace all, any and all. Well, he and I are on the same page on that one. I really like that approach because we do come from similar roots. I, I think it'd be fascinating to go to that meeting because it's interesting where people's doctrinal points conflict with each other and where they intersect. And I think a lot of the Missouri folks, one of the cool things we're kind of like laughing about Mormons gathering, but there really is a spirit of open-mindedness. I think 
wouldn't you say amongst a lot of the folks in Missouri? With- even the fundamentalists, you know, even the fundamentalists that are there, there's a, there's a couple of fundamentalist communities that I know of there. And the, probably the most visible is the one called the ranch, which is down in Southern Missouri, down by Springfield. I visited that place. It's been there. It's been there for a long time. It's been there since like the early eighties, but essentially it was founded by two brothers and one of their friends who were in the AUB at the time. They prayed and received a a revelation that they should move to Missouri and specifically a hundred miles south of independence. And so they went down to Southern Missouri and they bought a large piece of property and gradually people started moving out and they've attracted quite a diverse group of fundamentalists that you have people from the AUB, you have uh, independence, you have LeBarons, you have people from Centennial Park, the Nielsen Nailers, and not all of them meet together religiously. Like they have a chapel there. And they will rotate the use, like say, okay, you know, the independents are going to meet here at this time and the Nielsen Nailers are going to meet here at the other time. But so they don't necessarily all meet in a religious capacity together, but they do all of their social functions together. And every That's fifth fun. Sunday, it's like very one heart, one mind. Yeah. And every fifth Sunday, they all meet together and they invite the LDS church to go also. And surprisingly members of the LDS church will go to the fifth Sunday meeting also. And they won't do any ordinances for that meeting. They won't do like sacrament, but they'll all at least meet and have like a testimony meeting, you know? That's what I was going to ask because we're talking about this like big tent Mormonism over in Missouri, but I would think that my people, the mainstream LDS would be the most judgy of that. Yeah. I mean, maybe this wouldn't happen. No, this most certainly wouldn't happen if it was in Utah. <laughs> maybe since it's in Missouri, you know, and that uh, a lot of the Mormons, the LDS Mormons that moved to Missouri are what I termed earlier as gatherers anyway, which are kind of quasi-fundamentalist anyway. Maybe they find some sort of convergence and commonality, you know. And not only that, they're very open-minded in other ways. They're open-minded to challenge doctrines. They're open to new things. For instance, uh, I've never been to a Mormon meeting where they were speaking in tongues, except in Missouri. So here's where I land on it. You know, I, some fundamentals were like Lindsay Anson Park is against what we stand for. And it's like, no, you guys, I will fight for the rights of adults to live their religion. I fight for the rights of my fundamentalist friends. I've helped decriminalize polygamy in Utah for that matter, but don't marry kids, kids, don't marry family members. Let's not do incest, abuse, underage marriage, forced marriage, coercion. Don't separate families. Have your Star Trek bunkers. You do you. That's great. But don't, (laughs) don't get into the weird sex stuff and, and you're fine, but it's when you get and you leave your kids to move to Missouri. That's when I'm like, you guys no, settle down. That is not the way. So it's, it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of good spirits in Missouri, but there's also a lot of extremism and sounds a lot like Utah. Yeah. Yeah. You're right on that. Closing thoughts. What would you tell people? How, how can they visit some of these groups? You know, it's kind of funny. I think that, uh, 
there's still some reticence there. You kind of have to know somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> so uh, if people want to ask questions, they can contact me. I can direct them somewhere. But I love going to Missouri. I, I try to go at least once or twice a year. I haven't moved there yet, uh, mainly because I get, uh, you know, I've been like clearing my throat and coughing all through this interview, but I have bad asthma and it gets aggravated when I'm over there, like horribly so. So I think that if it wasn't for that, maybe I would be more open to considering going there myself. Moroni Jessup gets the ague going back to Missouri. What's up? You get the og, the ague going back to Missouri. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But uh, I love going back there. My wife and I love going back there. And uh, we try to go as often as we can and participate. And for me, one of the differences for me personally as a fundamentalist is that fundamentalists here in the West, in Arizona and Utah, I get so cliquish. I went to a wedding earlier this year, or excuse me, last year. People that knew me and knew that they had a difference with me were standoffish and cliquish and basically didn't want to give me the time of day. And it's that way everywhere. It's like, if you're not in my camp, I'm not talking to you. And there doesn't seem to exist that in Missouri. They intermarry between groups. They seem to have genuine love and compassion for each other. And I love that. When I go there, you know, I love being independent also. I love not belonging anywhere. (laughs) But at the same time, it's nice every now and then to go somewhere where I know that they will accept me who, no matter who I am. That's good to hear too. Like I said, that's kind of the stereotype of, we have this idea that all fundamentalists are like these radical zealot extremists, and it's not that way. And again, I I do think if you are a fundamentalist listening to this, you have, you don't have to do this, but I would say that if you want acceptance, you need to fight within the fundamentalist community against the, the bad parts, the things that are making it harder for you, which, like I said, if your doctrine has child sex crime stuff in it, it's not of God, work it out, figure out a different way that doesn't have to hurt hurt people. Because there are folks like Moroni Jessup, who you do a lot of good uh, opening people's mind, especially we haven't talked about this, maybe someday we will about racial issues, because we're going to talk about that someday. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I just really appreciate the willingness you have to talk to outsiders, to, to keep the communities not closed off from the outside world. Cause I think that that can lead to some dangerous things. And yeah, so Morona is always out there. If you guys want to find him, Morona, how can they look you up? They can write to me at angelwolf51 at Gmail, or they can contact me through my blog, the punk rock polygamist. Okay, well, Moroni, thanks so much for coming on and talking to Missouri today. This has been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot, too. Well, thank you for having me. It's always great to talk to you, Lindsay. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.